Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have an incredibly real and honest conversation with the amazing Molly Galbra. Wow, I absolutely loved this conversation with Molly, who quite frankly opened my eyes to a number of pressures and challenges women face as it relates to how their bodies look and how the health and fitness industry quite often ends up doing more harm than good. More of these conversations are needed in my opinion as it brings a voice to many of the struggles women face around their bodies and health. A voice that brings women together through their common experience and helps men empathetically see the powerful social pressures women are under. Molly is absolutely the right person for this conversation. She's had quite the roller coaster with her body and self-worth over the last 16 years, which of course you will hear about, and she has spent the last eight years connecting, understanding, and educating over 700,000 women worldwide on health and fitness through Girls Gone Strong. Molly's commitment to understand the psychological issues and needs of women regarding health, fitness, and physique is unrivaled in my opinion. Her personal battles and struggles, a career of being in the gym, being an educator and researcher, as well as an ambassador for women's well-being, brings a level of understanding and empathy which women and men get so much out of. In this episode, we cover how culturally women have been conditioned to care so deeply about how their bodies look and the judgment of others. We talk about the obsession with leanness, the issues with tying your self-worth to your body, the common mismatch ladies have between their goals and their actions when it comes to fitness, building muscle as a woman, and the aggressive language within the fitness industry. And of course, Molly shares her roller coaster of a story, her battle with Hashimoto's and PCOS, and how she balances out her life and well-being needs these days, and lots more. As a man, I would thoroughly encourage every guy to listen to this. And I hope for women that Molly and I carefully and accurately covered some well truths and health and fitness issues that you care about. This is a must listen for everybody. I personally learned so much and I mean that genuinely. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot, whether it be on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, check out our Be Your Best self-optimization journey, an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Cool, that's the intro done and dusted. Look, I can't wait to introduce you to the incredible Molly Galbraith as we explore the deep cultural and personal challenges women face when it comes to their bodies and how they look. Enjoy, guys. This is a great day. Why? Because we have an amazing guest. She's a world-renowned lifelong fitness entrepreneur with endeavors in software creation, gym ownership, 
coaching and online businesses. She represents physical and mental strength, open vulnerability, courage, and overcoming adversity. Throughout her life, she has been a competitive gymnast, cheerleader, figure competitor, and powerlifter. But don't let that create distance between you and her. She is a normal, everyday woman who has had to battle with Hashimoto's, PCOS, weight issues, and a broken heart. Today, she stands for empowering women globally through her online brand, Girls Gone Strong, which is a powerful 700,000 strong community focused on women's health and fitness through coaching, support, and education. Yes, you guessed it. We have the incredible, charismatic, and so relatable, Molly Galbraith. Welcome, Molly. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I appreciate how I can just already feel from the very beginning that you're familiar with my story and really exploring and diving deep into meaningful topics that hopefully your community will be very interested in. I'm blessed to have you on the show. Honestly, you're a true uh, inspiration, Molly. And yes, I have I've been looking into your story. I've been um, following you for not years, but a good good six months or so. And yeah, you put out a lot of great content. So looking forward to this. Um, and as I say, really happy to have you on this show. Look, the reality is, I try my best, but this is a male-dominated voice. You know, I'm a male. Most of the guests are men. Uh, we talk about general issues, but it has a slant towards, I guess, a, 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 a man's perspective. So I'm really mm. looking forward to kind of hearing the female voice, female challenges, and really exploring what is an underrepresented part of our show, because this is not just for men, it's for everyone. And I'm looking forward to exploring that. So hopefully, if you're good with this, I'd like us to get into some of um, some of the issues that women struggle with, as it relates to really getting in shape, um, loving themselves, their body, exercise, diet, etc. And maybe we can close on some practical guidance, whether it be how you live your life now or some of the tools and services that you have available. Does that sound all right, Molly? That sounds great. I'm ready to get started. Cool. All right. So um, I think it's best, uh, hopefully you agree, that maybe we get started by spending as much time as you feel is necessary, really just introducing our audience to your story and leading us up to the creation of Girls Gone Strong. Start wherever you like. Yeah, I would love to. So you mentioned um, some of my physical endeavors. You made me sound as though I was a lot more physically active at the first half of my life than <laughs> I actually was. So you are correct. I was a competitive gymnast for several years, but I'm actually almost six feet tall. So that doesn't like certainly did not have kind of quote unquote, the normal gymnast body type. I can remember the first time I um, felt negatively about, about my body. I was seven years old. I was, um, in the bathroom at gymnastics practice, putting my hair in a ponytail and I could see what I now know are biceps muscles, but I thought that my arms were gross and that they looked like boy arms. Um, and then, so I did competitive gymnastics for several years and then was a cheerleader for a couple of years and then got very sedentary at the end of high school, beginning of college, ended up gaining a, a quite a bit of weight and just by the time it was around 2004, February, 2004, I was 19. And I remember feeling really unhappy with how my body felt and how it looked. And I just, just didn't feel good in my body. And it was interesting because I felt like other things in my life were going pretty well, school, work, friends, all that stuff. Um, and I was like, well, this is the thing that I have the most control over. 
Um, so I'm going to do something about it. And so I hired a coach, a uh, fitness coach, worked with him for about six weeks, but as a poor college student, couldn't afford to work with him much longer than that and um, started dating and I fell in love with fitness. And then about eight months later, I started dating a trainer at the gym, which is much more economical. Um, he was a competitive power lifter and bodybuilder. And so I got thrust into the world of intense exercise very quickly. And within a year of joining the gym, I was competing in a powerlifting meet. And then within a couple of years, I was doing figure. So I did powerlifting in 2005, figure competitions in 2006, seven and eight, and then powerlifting again in 2009. So after my last figure competition in 2008, I noticed something was really off. And for people who aren't familiar with figure competitions, they're essentially, I don't know if they're called something different where you all are, but it's essentially, it's somewhere between bodybuilding and bikini. So you're going to be more muscular and leaner than like a bikini competitor and less muscular and less lean than a bodybuilder. Um, but it's still very, 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 in my experience, hard on my body, particularly back in 2006, seven and eight, when we had less information than we do now about, um, you know, dieting and things like that. I was at one point, um, eating 900 calories a day and doing two hours of cardio. And, um, it was on top of my strength training. And so after every competition, my body would rebound really badly. And not only would I rebound emotionally and psychologically as I had a hard time controlling my eating and just really struggling with that, but my body would rebound as well. So I'd gain 15, 20 pounds in a matter of two weeks. Um, but after my last competition in 2008, something was different. I was 24 and I could hardly get up off the couch to get a glass of water because I felt so physically depressed. It was less of an emotional depression and more of just like a, I can't move. And I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, like you said, which is autoimmune thyroid disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and an adrenal issue, which is, a, it was a feed, it was called adrenal dysfunctions. So There's a feedback loop issue between my brain and my adrenals. And this was a really difficult diagnosis to get. And what I know now is that I was very lucky to get it so quickly. Most women on average see five uh, doctors over five years before they're diagnosed with things like Hashimoto's um, because it's just, they're so tricky. And especially when you have multiple kind of conditions going on at once and all the symptoms are all over the place. So um, that was 2009. And um, I felt like, I remember looking in the mirror and just feeling like, for the first time in five years, my body is completely out of my control. And for the, and the desire to control my body is something that we can dive into a little bit later. But this, um, for the last five years, I was like, oh, okay, adjust carbs like this, adjust cardio that way, do this training program. And my body just literally responded like magic. Um, and at this point there was nothing I could do. And so for up to that point, I've been getting so much praise and affirmation and validation for the way that my body looked, my, my shrinking body, um, that I thought, well, if I, you know, I can't be the really, really fit girl, the really lean girl, then I'm going to be the really strong girl. So I decided to go back to powerlifting, did that for a little while. And by the beginning of 2012, everything was going pretty well. My Hashimoto's and PCOS were getting under control. My, um, my, I was getting stronger. I had worked with some coaches to kind of, basically I had built a big house of strength on a teeny tiny foundation. I had never mastered fundamental movement patterns, things like that. I just basically gripped and ripped when it came to things like deadlift and, um, and, you know, just hadn't really gone back to the basics. And so I did that. 
And then beginning of 2012, everything felt like it was going really well. And then my life got flipped upside down because my dad died unexpectedly. So I found out he was sick on a Saturday and he died that Tuesday night um, of pneumonia, yeah, of pneumonia, which is just wild. And at this day and age that that still happens. And then two weeks later, I was lifting in the gym and I injured my back and that kicked off two years of chronic pain where I could hardly tie my shoes. And then um, about eight months later, I left a six-year relationship. Um, I left the home and business we had together and I moved home with my mom. And I mean, I was 28 years old, in pain, struggling with autoimmune disease, you know, left a relationship, left a home, left a business, living with my my mom and stepdad. And I remember just feeling like a complete and utter failure at everything. Um, by that point, I had owned, I owned a gym and I had just started Girls Gone Strong about a year before. And I was at a Girls Gone Strong meetup in late 2012. And my friends, the fellow women who were involved with Girls Gone Strong were deadlifting double their body weight, doing weighted chin-ups. And I remember I was on the back, on my back, on the ground, doing breathing exercises to try to ease my pain. And I went into the gym, I went to the bathroom and I weighed myself. I hadn't, I saw there was a scale in there. I hadn't weighed myself in a while. And, you know, as you can imagine during that year, my nutrition and exercise were not necessarily my top priority. And it was hard for me to move my body. Um, and I looked down at the scale and I had basically regained all of the weight back up to where I was when I started my fitness journey almost nine years before that. And, you know, I had been feeling badly about myself, but that, and in that moment felt like objective proof that I was a failure. And, you know, I'm like, I'm a coach and I can't even, you know what I mean? Eat and exercise the way I want to. I can't move my body. I'm not strong. Who am I to, you know, own an organization called Girls Gone Strong. And um, the hardest part was I was not the only one beating myself up about it. I was getting comments. By this time, I had a bit of an online presence. So I was getting comments on my YouTube channels from people asking me what, um, why I didn't look like I used to and what was wrong with my body. I was getting comments from women in my community telling other women not to come to my gym because they might look like me. Mm -hmm. And I was getting comments. There was a, I had a fellow male colleague who my, my then business partner and I invited to our gym to speak at a conference. And after the conference, I found out that he stood in my office and was making fun of my body to people who worked for me. And so that was really hard. Um, because again, I was getting criticism. I, I was already feeling it myself. And then I was getting all this outside criticism and it was directly related to my body. And I felt like I had no control over it. And so I was like, okay, the only solution is to quote unquote, get my body back and diet again. So I hired in the spring of 2013, I hired a nutrition coach and started dieting again. And he, I remember one day I had, you know, it's the, I had, we had the relationship at that point where I would send him progress pictures and he would send me a, you know, a meal plan and then I would follow the meal plan and then I'd send him the pictures and then he would adjust it. And I remember one week I had not lost any scale weight. And I don't think my measurements had changed. And I looked down at my, the new meal plan and I was like, oh, this looks the same, except it was missing 
a slice of avocado at dinner. And I was so upset. I started bawling. And I thought to myself, is this what I want for my life? To send pictures of myself in a bathing suit to some dude a few states over so he tells me I can't freaking have avocado at dinner? Like, no, this is not what I want for my life. And so it was at that point that I made a resolution to heal my relationship with my body, to like myself regardless of how my body looked or performed, to heal my relationship with food so that I could actually eat and not have it take up so much of my mental capacity. Mm. And that kicked off the last seven plus years of the work that I've been doing internally and with women in the world to yeah, heal my relationship with food in my body and um, you know, finally get to a place where I feel free and where I can use my energy to channel it into my unique gifts to uh, you know help women across the world instead of weighing my spinach leaves and counting my oatmeal flakes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I know. There's but, a lot to which direction you want to go. No, there's there, there's a lot there. And thank you for being open, honest, and 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 vulnerable enough to ex- explore that because my my uh, intro paints just the good parts, and you've you've peppered that with the reality of life, right? Which is struggles and suffering and um, internal battles, self work, and it sounds like you've had to do a lot of self work. But let's cut. Let's pull on the thread of. And I don't know whether it is central Mm -hmm. because it may just be central because of the way you describe your story. But it seems that your relationship with your body has been fairly central to your life for much of your life. Why Mm. is that a fair statement? And if it is, why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think you're exactly right. And I think that, you know, there are some, certainly some, it's kind of nature and nurture, right? I am, like I mentioned at the beginning, taller and bigger than most women. So I think um, from that perspective, there was something different about me. Um, We were also really poor growing up. And so I was always really self-conscious about that. I didn't have cool clothes. Um, in fifth grade, my jeans got a hole in the knee. And I remember just feeling devastated because um, that the hole in the knee was going to kind of clue people into the fact that I was wearing the same pair every day. And so I just remember always just being very conscious of myself and it was related to my body. And yet in the work that I do, I hear women who are self-conscious about being too small and who are self-conscious about having red hair. A lot of women are very aware of their identities and their bodies very early on. And that is, you know, very, um, by design. I mean, there's a, a, um, media scholar who says that at least today we see 4,000 to 10,000 images every single day in the media. And those, we only process about 8% of what we see consciously. And so the other 92% of what we see is processed subconsciously by our brains and shapes what we believe to be right and true and good and normal and all of these things, right? So if you Google 
on the term fit woman. And this is an exercise that comes from a woman named Dr. Larissa Mercado Lopez, who is a professor of women's studies at Fresno State and also an expert contributor and curriculum creator for Girls Gone Strong. If you Google the terms fit woman and you look at the images that pop up, they are so homogeneous. Almost all of the women are young and thin and lightly muscled and white and scantily clad and all of these things. And there's there's nothing wrong with those individual women or their bodies. But the idea is that when that is all that we see in media, then that shapes what we think to be true about what a fit woman, you can do the same exercise with beautiful woman, um, it shapes what we think is true about that. And so that has, that plays a really large role. And then if you look at the magazine covers for young girls, there was um, there's a really well-known kind of comparison between two magazines here in the States that are aimed at, I believe, nine to 14-year-old girls. And the girls magazine is called Girls Life. And if you look at the magazine cover, it says things like, boys, 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 how to get your crush to notice you. Um, your perfect beach body, thin arms, lean, uh, lean, lean abs, toned legs. You'll want to live by the pool. Um, wake up pretty. Um, let's see, good, uh, how to have a good hair day every day. Um, are you, here's, here's the one. Are you sending him the right signals? We are literally putting on the cover of a magazine to nine to 14 year old girls, asking them if they are sending boys, whatever the right signals mean, but essentially the signals of, are you sexually available and interested in whatever I'm interested in. And so there's just this massive, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's insidious everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Social conditioning. And so, um, and it's everywhere. And so there's this, you know, idea that, and, and so often we treat women as objects, right? Like young girls in school, we, put dress codes in so that boys don't harass them, right? Instead of policing the young boys who are harassing them, we put dress codes in so girls try not to get harassed, right? So there's this, and so there's all this responsibility placed on us and stuff. So it's, it is very complex. It is very deep. It is ingrained in everything that we do. We tell little girls they're pretty. We tell little boys they're smart and brave. So I think there are a lot of complex factors, but it is not surprising that 80% or 81% of women in the U.S. and 80% of women in Canada are dissatisfied with their bodies. That's according to a 2016 Dove Global Beauty and Confidence Report, and that um, 79% of young girls report opting out of important life events because they don't like how their bodies look. And 85% of women also report opting out of important life events because they don't like how their bodies look. So that means women are not going to weddings and reunions because they don't have anything to wear. They're not, you know, going to the beach or the pool because they don't feel good in a swimsuit. If they do go to the beach or the pool, they are um, you know, staying sidelined so they don't have to do that walk to the water, feeling like everyone's looking at their body. They're not being in pictures and videos with their children. It is just insidious. Every time I have a talk that I give about body image and every time I ask these questions, how many of you all know someone who every hand in the room goes up? Um, yeah. yeah so let's, it's, let's, it's let's, big. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's poke into this a little bit more. So I, my wife um won't mind me saying that she has um she is aware that she places too much emphasis on judgment um mm. of herself 
and that's not just definitely not just through guys, but just generally speaking. And you know, we've 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 spoken about this for years about a, a, a guy who me who doesn't necessarily care so much about what people think of me. I struggle to understand why she cares so much about what other people think of her. Mm. Uh, and we'd work through this, and you know, we, we'd explore some stuff, but. It is, as you say, it is insidious. It is everywhere. This this sense of judgment. I think every, many people feel it, but it seems that women feel it more. And I can understand everything you've said. All that social conditioning that's been built not just by guys, but by girls um, throughout the world. There's a lot of judgment, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of bitchiness, as well as there's a lot of sexualization. But here's the thing that kind of intrigues me a little bit, Molly. So if you look at nature. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of kind of looking through evolution and nature to kind of direct our behavior. Um, a lot of nature has the guys peacocking, literally, right? It's the guys mm-hmm. that have to make all the effort. It's the guys that have to get the attention of the female. Um, <laughs> and it's quite funny to watch all these nature shows. But for some reason, in humans, we've reversed that, where it's almost the girls have to make the effort. And I heard a stat recently that uh, Middle East, uh, some Middle East countries such as Kuwait have the highest obesity rates in the world. And if you take mm. a look at that demographic, you find that majority of that weight is actually held by men. And the men, you know, wearing their, you know, their, um, you know, their white gowns, etc. Th- they seem to not have to care about their physique. They don't have to care about how they look. They don't really have to express much of that. They've got money, they've got wealth, they've got access to women as they need. Um, and it seems quite twisted and weird that men just don't have to make as much difference some countries much less than others mm-hmm. um and i'm just trying to kind of like try and piece this together and say why why do women feel that that overwhelming sense of being judged why is it so strong in women and less so in men i know lots of men care don't get me wrong but yeah. it does seem to be stronger in women yeah and i um certainly, you know, I have some ideas or thoughts about this. I wouldn't want to position myself as a full-on expert about this topic, but, um, and it also depends on kind of, you know, if you look evolutionarily as well, and also in society, uh, men's value, quote unquote value comes from their ability to be able to provide for the, you know, woman or whatever, at least in heteronormative terms, it's like the man who has the resources, the wealth, the success, et cetera, um, can then care for his family. And so uh, men are often viewed, their value is judged on what they can do and how they can provide. And women's value is so often judged on how our ability to catch a man, right? (laughs) How, how, um, quote unquote, like what a good wife and mother we would be, things like that. And I think that there are some issues with that that are kind of wrapped up. So women um, from a young age are taught that, you know, we have to compete with each other for the attention of men um, and that our value is also really related to our relationship with men. So I'm um, I've been in a relationship with my partner, Casey, for seven years, and we're not married, we're not engaged, anything like that. And I was in a six-year relationship before that. And I cannot tell you the number of times I have been asked the question, when is that boy going to wise up and marry you? Um, As if I am sitting here waiting around for him Mm -hmm. to deem me worthy enough to marry versus us being 
two autonomous adults who make big life decisions together. Mm -hmm. It is absurd. And when people um, ask him, like, oh, does she pressure you to marry her? He's like, uh, you know, she's not really like, no, that's not. And they're like, oh, man, you're so lucky. As if he's, quote unquote, getting away with something, right? <laughs> like, and then as if his life, yeah, and as if his life is totally different because we're not married, as if he's allowed to, like, do whatever he wants or sleep with, you know, it's, it's just so weird. And so it's ingrained in everything that we do that, you know, women's value comes from our attractiveness, our ability to catch a man, um, and, you know, our marital status, our relationship to men, our relationship to children, things like that. And so I think it's, yeah, there's some deep, 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 um, cultural things going on there. And then like, you know, some deep seated, there's probably some evolutionary, there's some nature, some nurture. Um, yeah. And we just like women are constantly getting the message. Oh, I've, I've actually got a fantastic story that kind of brings all of this into one, if you'd like to hear it. Go for it. Um, I was visiting my grandmother at a nursing home a few years ago and signing in at the front desk. And there was a woman working there. She was probably early forties and very Southern. I mean, I'm based in Kentucky. She was very Southern, very like, bless your heart, you know, kind of thing. And so I was signing in and she goes, when are you getting married? And I said, um, 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 I don't know. My, my partner and I, you know, haven't really talked about it. She goes, oh, I thought you were engaged. And I said, no. And she goes, well, how long have you been with him? And I said, uh, I think four years. And she goes, well, if he hasn't asked you to marry him within two years, he is not planning to. I know from experience. And I was like, oh, well, that, that's not really how our relationship works. We, you know, kind of make these decisions together. And she goes, well, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 32. And she goes, well, you better hurry up if you're going to have babies. And I said, oh, actually, we've decided we're not going to have children. And she goes, <gasps> and she backed away from me by about like six feet and said, oh, I get it. You don't want to ruin that beautiful body of yours. And I said, actually, um, I don't agree that pregnancy ruins women's bodies. It's just, you know, kind of a bigger decision than that for me. And she goes, well, who's going to take care of you when you get older like your gamma? And I said, I don't know, Jane, but I don't think that's a good reason to have children. <laughs> have a good day. <laughs> and walked away. So if you want all of the expectations of growing up in the South, in the U.S., wrapped into one conversation, you have them right there. That's brilliant. I love that. I love that. And the accent was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, yeah. So that, that, I mean, that there it is right there, you know, they expect it to be uh, wives, um, mothers have the perfect body, you know, like be pleasing to our partners, all of those kinds of things all wrapped up into one. But when you talk about perfect body there, Molly, and um, you, you say Google fit woman, and I can, I can imagine what you're talking about. You're talking about, you know, the fitness model look, right? Uh, mm -hmm. versus bikini model and versus more voluptuous or shapely otherwise. But what, what strikes me as odd, and again, I'm a, I'm a man who can understand it, so it's not like as if this is bizarre to me, but what strikes me as odd is that really the epitome of beauty is really an expression of health. Like how well, well endowed are you to be a good mother or a good father, have good genes, help us thrive as a couple and thrive as a species? And as you think of like a healthy woman, you you know, I, this isn't derogatory. You do think about wider hips. 
you do think about that shape that is going to be conducive to um, an appropriate birth, right? Um, yet there, there, there seems to be almost a, a masculinizing of of the female shape, right? Over the decades, it's like less weight, less weight, less weight, less weight, less shape, really. And I don't really understand why one, if that's driven by men, why it's driven by men. And if it's driven by women, why it's driven by women. Am I speaking out of turn? Am I hitting on a, on a third <laughs> row I shouldn't go to? I just wondered your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's driven by industry. So if you look, well, and uh, driven by industry and also driven by, so driven by money, driven by industry and driven by whatever is kind of going on socio-politically at the time, right? So if you go back in history and you look at certain body shapes that were prized, that were a lot more voluptuous, that meant you come, you came from a wealthy family, you had fair skin, you, you know, probably came from wealth and didn't have to work outside, you know, things like that. Right. And so then you, and you go through history and you look at like the, um, gosh, it's like, you know, the twenties, 1920s was kind of like the, the flapper look. Right. And then like the thirties was a certain, I think maybe it was a like broader shoulders, more militaristic kind of look. And then you get more voluptuous and then, you know, that has to do with what was going on, at least here in the States with like, you know, the different wars that were going on and what the access was to food and um, different movie stars and stuff at the time. And then you get into the 80s and we had like the supermodels and the Crawford thing. And um, so the supermodels were driving the industry and fashion, mm -hmm. right? Then in the 90s, you had Kate Moss and she was this like really, they called it waif heroin chic. And so all of these diet companies also realized that they could make a lot of money off of these you know, getting women to constantly try to change their body shape or type um, and diet, you know, fat loss in the U S is like a seven, almost a $70 billion a year industry. And so there are, there's so much profit to be made off of convincing women that their bodies aren't good enough. And if you're constantly prizing a different body shape or size then women are constantly buying whatever you're selling to try to match you know what to try to match that whether it's diet pills and detox teas or waist trainers or glute implants or whatever the thing is women are constantly trying to um catch up and i think at least in the states maybe in the mid mid to late 2000s um crossfit became really popular and so there was a lot of industry around again protein powders and creatine and you know weight training and you know you know different weightlifting equipment and stuff like that so i think it's driven by trend and also driven by industry and the ability to make a significant amount of money off of telling women that their bodies aren't good enough mm -hmm. and one other point I wanted to make earlier that I got wrapped up, believe it or not, I got carried away in the conversation. Um, I, one of the reasons I think women fear so much judgment, um, is because the standards to which we are held, which are very, or communicated to us very overtly and also covertly are so impossible to meet. So we tell young girls to, you know, like, quiet down, be a good girl, play nice, like don't be competitive. And then we're like, you have to speak up for yourself. You have to, you know, assert yourself, but don't like be assertive, but not aggressive, you know, like stand up for yourself, but not like that, mm -hmm. you know, like be 
sexy, but not slutty. Be um, smart, but not too smart. Be, you know, a leader, but don't be, you know, don't make people uncomfortable. Um, And there are all of these just like really impossible standards. And then same thing with um, be small, but not, or, you know, be lean, but not too lean, because that looks manly. Um, Be curvy, but not fat, because that's the worst thing a woman could be, you know, have a big butt and big breasts, but a tiny waist and big lips and don't show it because you want to leave something to the imagination. And you're just like, I mean, like, <laughs> what? Like, what? And yeah. And there's all this interesting data. Um, that I've been studying as I, um, you know, work with girls gone strong and, and trying to develop more leadership skills and stuff. There's all this really wild research showing that, um, in like these role-playing scenarios, if you have like a male executive and a female executive, for example, and they deliver the exact same message to a team in essentially the exact same way, um, the women are rated significantly lower than the men, even though their language was exactly the same. And they get a lot of comments like, I don't know, she just seems a little aggressive. And then they're like, he's a great leader. And then it's like, uh, I can't put my finger on it, but there's just something I don't like about her. And they're like, you know, I really felt like he had my back, you know, and there's just like this um, massive difference in the commentary that we get, even when um, the the message is being delivered exactly the same. And so, yeah, I think there's just a lot of social conditioning, a lot of bias, a lot of, um, and it, I think a lot of it's so insidious, we don't recognize it. And I think it's, you know, there's some, nature stuff going on, as we talked about earlier. And I think there's a whole lot of nurture and social conditioning, but I think also people are becoming more aware of it. And that's the first step to being able to do something about it. hundred percent, you know, self-awareness, self-discovery and, you know, self-work, I think is, you know, the, you know, the dawn of our era. And I think we're, we're expressing that in so many ways right now. Um, you said something there that, I quite liked. And um, I remember when I was having a conversation with Brett Contreras um, about a year ago or so, and it was, we were talking about female physique considering he's he's the glute guy. (laughs) And um, he said something which I completely understand and see is that a guy starts losing some weight. He looks in a mirror and he goes, and he likes what he sees. It's like, okay, there's more work to be done, but we're making progress. Quite often, though, a female will look in the mirror and they may have lost equal amounts of weight proportionally, but they look in a mirror and they see something they don't like. They see something that still isn't right, isn't worth loving yet. And I feel that there, and I could be wrong, Molly, but I feel that there there, there seems to be a lot of that, a lot of the issues we're feeling with, lots of complexity around this is rooted in a a lack of self-love a lot of the times. Whereas guys just generally seem to like themselves a little bit more Mm -hmm. what do you think about that i think number one that's exactly right i think that um i think that's exactly right i think again the impossible standards make it really difficult for women to find their worth i think that our worth is so often tied up in the way that our bodies look that and that's ever changing right um what i've found over the last seven years on my excuse me, my own kind of self-love journey is I wanted, I wanted a steadfastness to the way that I felt about myself. I didn't want it to fluctuate with my scale weight or what I could do in the gym. Cause that's another kind of really popular trap that people fall into 
is like, oh, don't worry about how your body looks. Just worry about what it can do. And it's like, well, I mean, that's the same shit, different, different topic, because like I've been there as well, where I was focused on getting really strong and then I injured myself and I could hardly tie my shoes. And so I wanted to like my body regardless of how it looked or changed. But I think for so many women, um, you know, bodies change. Like if, if one thing is inevitable in life, right. It's that our bodies will change, whether they get bigger or smaller or faster or, you know, weaker or stronger or whatever over time, our bodies will change. And so when your, um, self-worth and your, uh, just kind of esteem is wrapped up in something in a moving target, that's never good enough. That is always changing. It's no surprise that that women are constantly looking for the next kind of flaw. So I think that is, that's a hundred percent correct. And again, I think that, um, starting at a young age, boys are certainly there are pressures on them. I'm obviously not a guy. I don't, I don't, um, pretend to intimately know what their struggles are. I do think there's something inherently different about men being encouraged to be bigger, faster, stronger, and women being encouraged to be, you know, smaller, quieter, leaner, thinner. Um, but you know, they're again, they are praised for things that have nothing to do with their body for being brave, for being smart, for being leaders, for being tough, for, you know, these things that aren't necessarily things that can be taken away from them the same way that, um, a woman's worth according to her body could be taken away from her as her body changes. So yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think that again, held to impossible, ever-changing standards that often conflict with one another, value wrapped up in the way that our bodies look, not only told that our bodies have to look a very particular way, but told that and conditioned to believe our bodies are the most important thing about us and the most important thing we have to offer the world. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of big, deep, complex stuff there. But the good news is, is um, again, awareness is key and it can be overcome. Do you think that we are moving in the right direction when when it comes to, um, I guess trying to desexualize? Like, no, I'm I'm all for respecting people's sexuality. I, I I don't think it makes sense for us to try and move towards being asexual as 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 a species. I think you know, women are women, men are men. There's female energies. There's 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 male energies. We should let those, you know beautifully just express themselves. Uh, but do you think we're moving towards, you know, the younger generations hearing a more kind of balanced message or a message that is uh, less focused on their physique? And as you say, these attributes that they must have as a, as a woman. What, what are your um, thoughts? Yeah, I am seeing that. And there's a couple little little tangents there. So yeah, I totally agree. It's less about, um, it's less about like desexualizing and more about, um, more about teaching women that their sexuality is their own and that pleasure is important for them and that they do not exist to please men, <laughs> which is another like really big, deep topic we could get into. So I think that's, you know, uh, giving people space to explore that within themselves teaching women autonomy, helping them under teaching consent 
to everyone, not just consent, like she didn't say no, but enthusiastic consent where both people are having a really good time the whole time Mm -hmm. throughout the sexual encounter. All of that stuff is incredibly important. Um, I also think, yeah, I think this younger generation is growing up with less, you know, baggage when, so the, um, U S women's national soccer team, when they were playing, um, this past summer, my nephew plays soccer, he and his friend, and we were at the lake and they were on the edge of their seats watching the women's, um, national team play soccer. And a lot of young boys were showing up in jerseys with the women's national team. They were showing up in wow. their, jer- in their jerseys wearing, yeah, wearing the women's jerseys. And it was to me such a, um, such a, dis- and, and, and when people were saying stuff to them about it, they didn't understand why they were like, I don't understand what do you mean. You know, she's blind. yeah, she's a great soccer player. And so I think that, you know, I see stuff like that. And I'm like, these kids are going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that, yeah, that it's changing in a lot of ways. I don't think that we can take for granted that it's changing. I think the work has to continue being done, but I do see, um, yeah, I do see things like that popping up all, all over the place. That gives me a lot of hope. Oh, that's, that's encouraging that you see that considering how close you are to these matters and it's your life's work. So that's, that's fantastic to hear as a man who, you know, I've got two young girls and I, I want them to be, you know, the best citizens they can be. Uh, I want them to have the fullest life they can. We're doing everything mm. we can to invest in them as being, you know, beautiful, young, um, capable individuals. Um, I don't want them to be asexual. I don't want them to feel that they have to be masculine to live in a masculine world. I don't want them to compromise themselves. And I don't, I I really don't want them to feel like having to live their lives for the um, judgment and the acceptance of of others. I really hope Mm. that through their generation, they can gain a little bit more autonomy and a little bit more self-respect and a little bit more kind of self-love and not feel they're always doing something to get praise or, or, Mm. or, you know, being called out by someone. I hope so. I hope that's kind of where we're going. Um, I, I have I have a, an, another question for you, Molly, which is more, it's, it's the same thing, um, but it's focused more on the fact, and, and again, you might see this differently than I, that quite often I see that um, women's actions when it comes to decisions around diet and exercise mm. don't always match their goals. And I, I find myself in this, debate more often than not whether it be my wife her friends or people that we know i'll ask what they want that that's kind of vague because kind of seems mm-hmm. that seems to be an uncomfortable question in its own right which is uh, i don't want to say that i'm not good enough i don't want to say that i want something else i don't want to say that someone else has got a physique i want but at the same time i want to change it okay well that's vague and i can't I can't help and really understand where you want to go with this. But secondly, I often find once I kind of really get a sense of where they want to go, that they're not necessarily performing maybe the optimal activities towards that goal or the most efficient activities. So you'll see, Mm -hmm. for example, an obsessiveness with training, um, Mm -hmm. an obsessiveness with class-based training, you know, like just, just slogging their guts out five, six, seven days a week, can't miss a session, can't miss a session, like no rest, like burning themselves out. But with the idea that this is net positive, you see a Mm -hmm. lifelong abstinence from certain foods, just like forever. 
You see a fear of dietary fat because that must equal fat. You see far too much emphasis on cardio that I think the world still needs to get over, but <laughs> it is <laughs> it is pervasive. And yeah, a, a, this idea that I must punish my body into being lean, punish my body into being in the right shape versus yeah. give my body nourishment, yeah. give my body the right, you know, exercise, the right recovery, the right love, and, you know, m mold my body into the right shape through care versus, as I say, punishment. Lots are thrown at you there, pull at anything you like, but why is it that women's actions don't match their goals and their goals are quite vague in general? Yeah. So I think, um, gosh, I think there's a, there's a, there are a lot of things that we could pull on there. I think clearly defining goals can be difficult for anyone in any industry or in any kind of endeavor. And I think probably because we're in fitness, we see it so much specifically in that, but like, if you ask someone who wants to start a business, like, what do you want to do? They're like, I want to be successful. And you're like, okay, cool. So like, what does that look like to you? You know, does that look like money? Does that look like freedom? Does that look like impact? Like, what does that look like? So I think in general, um, folks probably have a hard time setting really clearly defined goals for themselves. I think that, um, often, you know, cause when I, when I started working out, I wanted to quote unquote, get in shape. That was literally my goal. And like, I didn't know what that looked like. It just <laughs> seemed different. Right. Um, so I think people in every kind of area have a difficult time where I want to improve my relationship with my partner. Okay. Well, what does that look like? You know, does that look like more sex? Does that look like deeper conversations? Does that look like more time together? Does that look like less fighting? You know, like it's just helping people think through their thinking, which I think is really important. Um, so there's, there's that kind of side of things. I don't think that that's unique to fitness. And I think that their relationship with their bodies are really complex. So it probably takes some time to work through that. I think that there's a lack of education for a lot of people in general, but particularly women about kind of this idea that more isn't better, that what they like to do might not necessarily be conducive to their goals. And so, you know, at Girls Gone Strong, when we talk and try to help women reach their health and fitness goals, not only do we try to help them get clear on their outcome-based goal, but we work with them to break that down into, okay, well, what skills would you have to have to reach that goal? Okay. And then what are the daily habits and practices you have to have to gain the skills to reach that goal, right? Because you can't make someone's body lose 20 pounds or do a chin up, right? But you can say, okay, cool. So in order to do um, this particular thing, you would have to have this skill. So, okay. In order to, you know, do a chin up, you would have to have the muscle and strength to do a chin up. Okay. So what are some things that you can do? What are some behaviors you can put into place? Well, you can strength train three days a week or four days a week. You can add pull-ups to your program. You can make sure you're eating enough protein. So what does that look like? Well, it might look like adding a serving of protein at breakfast, things like that. So we try to break it down in that sort of way, but we also try to educate on helping them understand that there are specific methods of training that are more conducive to reaching certain goals and helping them strike a balance between what they enjoy doing, because mm -hmm. I think enjoyment is such a huge part of, um, helping them stick with it over the long haul. So what do you enjoy doing? What does your schedule look like? What's reasonable for you? What are your goals? And 
like, how can we figure out a way to fit all of this into your life? So it's like, okay, cool. You love group fitness classes. Um, what do you love about group fitness classes? Is it that all your friends go? And then afterwards you all go and have coffee together. Is it that you feel a sense of camaraderie? Is that you push yourself harder in group settings? Is it that it's at a specific time? So you basically make an appointment or a date with yourself, right? There could be a lot of deeper reasons why, she likes that particular group class or going to group classes. So you can say, okay, cool. So right now you're going seven days a week. You're not seeing the results that you want. Are you open to backing that down a little bit and just going three days a week and adding in two days of strength training, right? So figuring out, helping them understand the education piece, the what movements are conducive to what types of goals and how that fits their enjoyment and their schedule and all of the other factors, right? Because exercise and nutrition is not just X's and O's. There are deeper reasons like postpartum women, for example, they, you know, oftentimes find a lot of, um, they're really lonely at home with their new babies and maybe feeling um, depressed or struggling with postpartum PTSD or whatever, and going to that group fitness class may be the only time that they get to spend time around other humans, or maybe none of their friends have children and they feel really alone. And so being around other moms is really nourishing for them emotionally. Um, so we think there's some big things to think about there. Same thing with food. It's like, well, we can tell people to, you know, eat uh, four ounces of chicken and a cup of steamed broccoli and a cup of rice. Right. But food is culture and celebration and family and tradition and enjoyment and pleasure and like all of these things wrapped up into one, right? And if we don't recognize that in ourselves and our clients, I think that we're doing them a, a disservice and not helping them do it for the long haul. And then also speaking of kind of social conditioning and marketing and stuff, we have a really interesting article on Girls Gun Strong talking about how do you speak about fitness from uh, Dr. Kate Brown, um, who's an expert in language. And she talks about, if you look at the language we use to speak about fitness, we talk about um, the words are actually really kind of violent and negative. So we burn calories, we incinerate fat, we shred our abs, we crush and kill our workouts. We challenge and fix and sculpt and reset and repair. And it's like, oh my gosh, like if we, and if you say get rid of unwanted fat, like that's like, get rid of it. Like you get rid of trash, right. Or you, yeah, you earn your body, you control what your body looks like. And it's like, Whoa, like you shred your abs, you burn belly fat, you have a killer workout, like all that stuff is violent. And so it's just really interesting. Like no wonder women constantly feel like they're at war with and beating up their bodies. Cause that's the language that we often use to speak about fitness. It's not about you know, adding to their life and nourishing them and restoration and strength and building. And, you know, it's all about losing and burning and shredding and killing and incinerating. So, um, and it's like, you can think that that's not a big deal, but like, if those are the, yeah, if those are the words you hear and read and see and the images you see and stuff, um, it's really powerful. And so, um, those, those are some things that we've tried to be a lot more mindful of at Girls Gone Strong, but we, yeah, we very rarely talk to women about nourishing, caring for themselves, um, building their strength, you know, building strong bones and muscles, like, like building strong bones and muscles does not appeal to women the same way as shred your abs does. Right. And so it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge to, 
um, want to do the right thing and speak to women about their bodies and fitness in a way that's really positive and also, um, you know, also get them to want to work with you or come to your class or, you know, um, want to make those mindset changes themselves about their bodies and their fitness. I think that's, that's great. I've never really thought about the language of fitness, Mm. but you are so right. You are so right. And I often use nourish and care for and like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, nourish yourself into, you know, the physique you want. Um, that's how I think about it. That's how I look after me, but, um, it's not how the fitness industry talk about yeah, it. I think and that's so right. That's so right. There's another thing that is, I, I was having a conversation. We've had a couple conversations about it in the last few years. There are some like cues and stuff that we use as coaches that are actually, um, can be really triggering and are violent. So like I used to use the cue all the time, brace your core. Like someone's going to punch you in the stomach <laughs> And that's a really common one. And I found out uh, a few years ago that 30% of women, at least in the U.S., um, are survivors of intimate partner violence and domestic violence. And so one in three women who were coming in my gym have most likely experienced abuse at the hands of their partner. And I'm using language like brace, like I'm going to punch you in the stomach. And it's like, man, like so many women... And particularly after they get out of those relationships, come to the gym to seek autonomy and agency and strength and power and, you know, feeling like their body belongs to them and they're safe and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, wow, like language matters so much. Um, in everything that we do related to fitness. Um, you know, there's evidence that talking about you know, your someone's knees being bone on bone or suggesting that their posture might cause their pain um, is more like those those clients are more likely to present with pain, right? So there's language that, that we use is really powerful. And I think that recognizing that, and, and now that you've heard me say this, you're not going to be able to unsee it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you're going to start noticing that and everything. That is, that is beautiful. And I think, I think we all need to use better language, not just for for women, but for guys too. Um, mm-hmm. You said something there about enjoyment and how enjoyment in exercise is important. And you know what? As a as a goal oriented guy, as someone who wants efficiency, optimal performance and efficiency, I've mm-hmm. str- I've struggled to sympathise. I do now, and I have done for a while. But I did struggle for a while when I knew like I. I need to find a way to enjoy doing the right thing because the mm-hmm. right thing is going to get me the results I want. It's the best results and the fastest results, the most effective results. So, you know, I'll use my wife as an example because we have these conversations all the time. But, you know, <laughs> she intellectually will go, I know what I want and I, I know what's probably best for me from a, a wellness, health, uh, physique perspective, but I just don't enjoy doing it. What I enjoy doing <laughs> is going for a spin class. What I enjoy doing yeah. is doing yoga. What I enjoy doing is is a bit of a circuit. Uh, she wants to get a sweat on. She wants to, you know, feel that she's working. Like there's there's you know there's there's intensity, but for a short period of time, she doesn't enjoy the the nerve wracking nature of lifting heavy weights and putting herself mm-hmm. through kind of like eye popping, you know, kind of um, <laughs> reps. She doesn't enjoy it. Um, so we've kind of backed and forth on that. And then I guess I kind of like, I, I stepped away and thought, you know what, our industry, the industry of 
fitness and health is a relatively new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. We've been using our bodies, moving our bodies all of our existence. And only for a very, very finite period of time has that expression of movement been about changing your body. For the most part, yeah. it's organic and innate that we feel human, we feel well, we feel, you know, well-being. We're us when we can express movement in the way that makes us feel happy. So I kind of backed away. I was like, do you know what? You do you in terms of what makes you happy. But we also need to be honest with ourselves that you doing you because it makes you happy and, and well may not give you the physique goal you want. And you're going to have to be okay with that. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at now, like with, with my wife and other people I speak to him, like you can have either or, but there are going to have to be some sacrifices on one side of that or the other. If you want the results you want and this in the speed you want, and you want the physique mm-hmm. to be sculpted in the way you want, you're going to have to make some choices. But do you, do you want to key off on that at all? around this idea yeah. of movement being so important? Yeah, I would love to. So, well, I, I used to give a talk a few years ago about this kind of balance or intersection of lifestyle, health, aesthetics, and performance. And I was talking about my own personal intersection of what that looked like for me. And in general, um, for me, that looks like three to four days of strength training for 45 minutes to an hour, Uh, maybe a little bit of high intensity interval training here and there, um, walking outside, um, you know, eating enough like protein or eating protein with every meal or snack, um, eating slowly, stopping when I'm satisfied and not stuffed, um, not depriving myself of any particular food. The only food I avoid is gluten and that has to do with my autoimmune disease. Um, but eating tacos and pizza and ice cream and vegetables and salad and, you know, fruit and things like that. Um, yeah, eating when I'm hungry, stopping when I'm satisfied and not overeating, which was something I struggled with for years and not stressing about it at all. So that, that kind of regimen essentially is my particular intersection of having good health, um, performing pretty well in the gym um, enjoying my life and feeling comfortable in the way that my body looks. And so, but there have been times in my life that I have had to shift that axis a little bit toward one of those more than the other. So when I was diagnosed with autoimmune disease, my focus had to be on my health. It could not be on my performance, my aesthetics or my lifestyle. So I had to do elimination diets and, you know, do all kinds of different testing and reintroductions and things like that, trying to figure out what was going to improve my health. Um, when I was training for powerlifting, I wasn't, I was trying not to worry about the way my body looked. Um, it certainly wasn't always the healthiest thing to do to go in and like, you know, just absolutely smash the heaviest weight. See, I said smash, right? We're always talking Mm -hmm. about talking about words and violence, um, to lift the heaviest weights possible. And it affected my lifestyle because I was training a lot harder and needed more sleep and things like that. Um, when I was in Italy with my family several years ago, like I didn't care at all about really my performance or my aesthetics or my health. I didn't really train. I just walked a lot. I ate gelato three times a day. I, you know, was not like, I wasn't thinking about anything except for enjoying my lifestyle. And then in terms of aesthetics, when I've trained for figure and stuff in the past, my health went 
um, you know, suffered, my performance suffered, my lifestyle definitely suffered. And so, um, over time, it's been continually recalibrating for me that intersection of health, performance, lifestyle, and aesthetics. Most recently, before COVID hit, I was training for hypertrophy. So um, I was wanting to get as jacked and muscular as possible. And then COVID hit. And so I was not able to access a gym. I just had access to a couple pairs of dumbbells. And um, I was out West in the U S and so I had access to a bunch of hiking trails. And so I found myself wanting to hike for one to two hours a day, every single day. And so I kind of had to put my hypertrophy goals on hold because of lack of access to, I mean, I probably could have devised a hypertrophy training plan based on what I had, but I wasn't, I kind of, as soon as I didn't have access to a gym and all the different stuff in there, I felt a little less motivated. So I made a deal with myself that I could hike as much as I wanted, but I had to do three um, strength training sessions a week, one 10 minute lower body, one 10 minute upper body and one 20 minute full body. And so that was kind of my, my plan. So I shifted my goals to match my lifestyle and my situation and made a deal with myself that I could hike as much as I wanted, as long as I did this type of strength training or whatever, even though I was feeling a bit demotivated to do that. And so as soon as my gym has recently opened, I'm getting back on my hypertrophy training program, but that's an example of me in real time, shifting my goals and my training to fit my lifestyle and what I had access to at this time and being willing to sacrifice some other things in my, my kind of life or whatever, you know, I was stopped worrying about aesthetics, stopped worrying about performance, uh, you know, health was, is kind of the same either way, but just worried about, you know, lifestyle, which was getting outside as much as possible and hiking. Um, so I didn't, uh, I wasn't stuck inside all the time and I could be outside safely. So that's an example of me shifting that in real time, um, recently, but that I find is a very, it's helpful because it, it helps women think of things less of an on off switch. And more of just shifting down the spectrum towards a little bit more towards a particular goal without everything else kind of going out the window. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, doing working out because it makes you feel good um, and brings, you know, that kind of mental space that you're looking for. Um, I think that's underrated and I think more people should want to work out because it makes them feel good and do the kind of workout that they enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think we we need to, I guess, maybe be a bit more honest with ourselves in terms of maybe the aspirational physiques we want. Because I know that many an aspirational female physique, I'm not saying that this is either my preference or what I'm suggesting should be the preference of others, but you know, those kind of popular Insta model kind of looks are more muscular than you you would ever realize. Uh, they hold a lot more muscle than most women do. Uh, and they're holding very little fat, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Both things are quite difficult to do for women, right? Women hold more fat than guys do, right? Just mm-hmm. just by nature, and that's okay. It doesn't look, it doesn't look like they're fatter than guys, but they hold more body fat than guys because of the critical nature of a female body having to you know carry children. So, one getting completely shredded is incredibly difficult. You can get into red s. You can get into other kind of issues of health, which you I think you've you've dealt with. But at the same time, those physiques require muscle, 
And mm -hmm. those muscles don't get developed if you're just doing cardio, right? So you'll right. find that women, you know, jump onto classes and some of the classes might be body pump or it might be some kind of light weights or a small little dumbbell, but they're AMRAP. They're just like flinging rate, weights around for 40 oh, yeah. minutes straight. Like, and I'm thinking, how the fuck are you doing that? That's amazing. But <laughs> what's the point? <laughs> um, so I know that, but if they enjoy it, they enjoy it. And I'm like, who am I to judge that? If you enjoy it, that's great. But I just want you to be real about what you're getting for it. You know, mm -hmm. what you're getting is emotions. What you're getting is perhaps a sense of winning, a sense of progress uh, mentally. You know, you're ticking things off. You're, you're you're setting PRs, what have you. But you're not necessarily moving forward in your, your physique goal. And maybe that's okay. Maybe your physique goal, maybe you're an 8 out of 10 already. But getting to that 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 in your mind as to what you think is a 10 out of 10, that's going to require a shift. And are you willing to mm -hmm. make those shifts? Are you willing to make those sacrifices? Yeah. And I think that's the conversation to have. And that's the, um, yeah, that's the autonomy piece, right. Of, of saying like, Hey, here's the reality. Here's what you're doing. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. In fact, like if, like I, uh, if we can get people to move their bodies in ways they enjoy a few times a week for most of their life, like they're winning, right? Mm -hmm. Like 100%. they are in terms of, in terms of like health and well being and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, that, that education piece, that autonomy piece. And that's, um, one thing that we preach a whole lot, at girls come strong is just showing women all that's possible for their life and their body and giving them the space to make those decisions for themselves. I think is really powerful and helps with women sticking with it for the long haul. S sell me, sell the women listening to this on muscle. <laughs> oh my gosh. It is, <laughs> it is investing in your own personal bank account. So, um, it's, you know, moderate to, I, I, I'm always a little nervous to say heavy strength training, right? Cause it's less about it being objectively heavy and more about it being subjectively challenging to your, to your muscles in a way that is not again, that like hundred rep, 200 rep kind of body pump way. Right. Um, there needs to be a combination of mechanical tension, micro trauma, and metabolic stress, which is the three mechanisms of hypertrophy. But building muscle for me has changed every aspect of my entire life. Um, it there's a after age 35, women lose, I believe, a half a pound of muscle a year for essentially the rest of their life. And that is not um that is not an irreversible objective fact that is due to lack of activity and again, lack of women's strength training. So that's sarcopenia is that muscle loss. A lot of women struggle with osteo osteopenia and osteoporosis, which is um, significant bone loss. Um, and all of these things are correlated with a lower life expectancy, um, less agency and autonomy and capability to care for yourself things like that. Um, so it is, and muscle is essentially like, it literally is like investing in your own, like physical, in your own physical bank account, not only because you'll become so much more capable and able to care for yourself and confident and strong. But there's a lot of just incredible health benefits in terms of having healthy blood sugar levels and building strong bones. So I did a DEXA scan a few years ago 
and my bone density was three standard deviations above the mean. Uh, I don't want to brag, but you That's know, cool. three standard deviations above the mean. Um, and in the last couple of years, I guess, gosh, it was about eight, nine years ago, I was working. Uh, I was a waitress for a long time while I was starting my businesses and I was walking quickly through the restaurant and I slipped and fell on a wet wood floor and I fell straight on my tailbone and I went to the doctor and he said I had a tiny little hairline fracture in my tailbone. Um, but essentially my bones were so dense and I had so much glute muscle that it essentially held everything in place, uh, when I fell. And, um, so that was a, a, um, example of the way that my strength training had essentially set my body up to protect itself when I hurt myself. And then a few months ago, I was, um, running down Camelback mountain, which is a really famous mountain in Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona area. And I tripped and fell on a rock and I landed right on my hip. And again, same kind of thing. I had a little bruise on my hip, but I was able to pop back up and keep running down the mountain because my bones are so dense. Um, and because I have muscle also to help kind of absorb some of that shock of falling. So I've had a number of things happen in my life where, um, strength training and the muscle that I've built and the bones that, you know, sturdy bones that I have built have really protected me in real life scenarios that could have negatively impacted my life so much more had I not been investing in my personal uh, muscle and bone bank account over the last 17 years. I love that. I love that. And I, I hear people, um, no, I, I hear it's, it's, it's a scientific fact that, um, and it also stands to logical reason that if you're frail and infirmed, you're more likely to come down or suffer more greatly with an infectious disease, right? So bringing it back to COVID-19, whereas the more lean mass you hold, the more, more quote unquote fight you have against an infectious disease. And I've heard that through various um, scientific uh, leaders talking about really the role of, of muscle isn't just that mechanical tension, the ability to move thing, but it, it becomes part of your metabolism, right? It helps support, as you say, blood sugar levels, but also just a healthy metabolism and more robust metabolism and more robust immune system. And I thought that was fascinating. And I think a, another reason to encourage uh, females to, you know, commit to muscle development, but committing to muscle development isn't just lifting heavy or heavy-ish weights around. It requires eating as well, right? So uh, how how do how do we how do we deal with that? Because <laughs> yes. it, it, it goes against every other recommendation uh, a woman's I ever know. heard through their conditioning of oh, diet. Seriously, of diet and twelve hundred calories, and yeah, it's it's pretty rough as well. So I think again, um, well, number one, I'm not a huge fan, and I don't know your perspective on this, so I might be um, stepping into a minefield. I'm not a huge fan of meal plans. Um, same, I did them same. for, yeah, I did them for years and they just kept me like tethered to a food scale and to a, you know, app tracking macros and to a, you know, schedule and all this kind of stuff. Whereas now for me, it's been those daily habits and practices that have really allowed me to not only nourish my body over time, but also adjust my eating based on same kind of thing, my environment, 
my, um, whatever, you know, health or fitness goals I have for myself and, and through enjoyment. So I think that again, a lot of women are afraid to, to eat. So making really small changes in their nutrition first is going to be incredibly important so that like trying to over, I mean, we know trying to overhaul anything at once never goes well. Right. So I think saying, okay, cool. So the only thing we're going to focus on this week, and again, depends on her goals, right? We typically start clients off with um, teaching them to tune into their um, hunger and fullness cues or teaching them how to slow their eating down. So they're putting their fork down in between bites. If they have food in their mouth, their fork is on their plate, right? That would be, that's, those are some skills and habits that we teach our clients. Um, but maybe for a particular woman, if her goal is to, you know, appear more muscular or sculpted or whatever, um, it's to add a source of protein at breakfast. And that's the only thing she focuses on for a few weeks. And so she can just make that one small change and see like, okay, you know, the world didn't end, like I'm allowed to feed myself, nothing, you know, I didn't have any major negative changes. In fact, maybe I had some positive changes. I noticed that I wasn't as hungry later in the day, or I was less grumpy, or I was able to last until, you know, lunch and not have a, like a mid-morning slump, didn't eat as much coffee or whatever the thing is, but start with these really small changes over time um, and have them slowly incorporate those into their life in a way that feels manageable and allows them to see, um, you know, what the effects are. Same thing that we do with women who are nervous about strength training. Um, you know, there's this idea that women, women are afraid they're going to get quote unquote big and bulky. And I feel like number a side tangent to that is I feel like a lot of trainers handle that poorly because they laugh and roll their eyes at their client um, versus like really listening and understanding and seeking more information about why she feels that way. But all that to say, if a woman is nervous about strength training, it's like, cool. So we'll just start you off with some body weight training. And at any point in time, you know, like it's difficult for women to gain a significant amount of muscle mass in general. However, if at any point in time you feel like that is happening, we can totally adjust your training program. And for mm -hmm. now, we'll just start with some body weight training, right? Which to someone who doesn't have a deep understanding of strength and conditioning, they don't always realize that body weight training is resistance training, right? Is strength training, particularly in the beginning for an untrained individual. So figuring out ways that you can slowly start incorporating things into their life in a way that doesn't feel like a complete overhaul. And in a way that allows them to kind of measure, see those results happening a little bit more slowly without feeling like, um, everything's being overhauled all at once. I think you said a couple of really great things there. I think nourishment is not necessarily an excess of calories, right? Just sometimes just, you know, matching your nutritional needs a little bit better, managing uh, your nutritional deficiencies, ensuring you're getting sufficient full profile um, amino acids. You know, these things don't necessarily come at a cost of eating like a gannet. It just means making smarter, more nutrient dense choices in favor of hypertrophy. That being said, uh, if you really want to take it seriously, there are going to be, uh, there's going to have to be some deliberate attempt to eat slightly more calories than your body needs, right? In, in time, right? Mm. That is going to have to be a direction of travel you take if that's important to you. Um, and, and I fear the words bulking are probably the very worst words you can promote to, to a lady in uh, trying to change her physique. Um, but how have you managed to handle that conversation of, right, okay, you, you do want 
you accept that maybe you want to stick on five pounds, eight pounds of muscle mass. This is a picture of someone who's got another 10 pounds of muscle mass more than you. Is that the kind of thing you want? Yeah, great. Well, that's going to take time. It's going to take a couple of years. It's going to take a commitment to that. And it's going to require you to be on point more often than not on having nutrient density and probably a sufficient burden of calories. How do you kind of, how do you navigate that without that sounding really scary from a fat perspective? Yeah, that's a tricky conversation. So first things first, I always empathize, normalize, and then ask more questions, right? So the the problem when we, when a woman says, I'm worried I'm going to get big and bulky, and we roll our eyes and kind of chuckle and we're like, that can't happen. Women don't have the hormonal profile. You know, that's just being really dismissive, number one, um, which is never a good never a good way to start off a relationship with a client. Number two, you have, you, we, I have no idea what her experience with that has been. So let's say she was a high school soccer player and the summer before her junior year, right? They, she's 16, 17, and they bring in a strength coach and the women's soccer team starts strength training. Well, what if she put on 10, 15, 20 pounds that summer? And it had to do with you know, just her body growing as a teenager and maybe some changes in her eating habits. Maybe she was a little bit hungrier because she was strength training and maybe she gained some muscle, but in her mind, she's attributing all of that to strength training. And so in her mind, if that happens and you roll your eyes at her, she's like, well, this person doesn't know me at all. Like last time I strength trained, I gained 20 pounds. Are you kidding me? You know, like they don't know what they're talking about. Right. So if you say, Hey, yeah, that's actually a really common concern that a lot of women have. And I'd love to know, like, kind of what makes you feel that way. And, you know, like, could you share a little bit more about your concerns? And then they'll often open up and share that story. So I think that's one really powerful way to address that. I also think it is, and we've touched on this or danced around this kind of idea a little bit, but um, it is like telling a woman that she's not going to get quote unquote big and bulky totally ignores the idea that we don't know what big and bulky looks like to her right? Um, there's a woman in the fitness industry named Lee Peel. And she did, she wrote this article a long time ago. It was 2009. I would say a long time in terms of fitness industry and how things have shifted since then. But essentially there was something wild, like 40% of women that she polled in 2009 considered Jessica Beal to be big and bulky. And it was literally because she had some visible, you know, biceps muscles and shoulder muscles and things like that. Um, and so it's like, okay, well, if that's what big and bulky looks like to you, then like, yeah, maybe, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe that's going to happen when you start strength training. Um, so, and again, I think that the perspectives on those um, particular aesthetics have changed a lot over the last, um, you know, decade or whatever, but yeah, I think addressing like, okay, so like, what does that look like to you? And Hey, like you said, the good news is like, you know, the good and bad news is you're not going to gain a ton of muscle overnight. However, um, you know, as you gain muscle, we can just stay in close communication about how comfortable you're feeling in your body, whether or not this is an aesthetic that you like for yourself, whether you're enjoying the training and we'll just keep really open lines of communication. And the good news is I have a lot of experience working with women. And so if at any point in time, you're not enjoying your training or you're not enjoying how your body's changing based on your training, we can fix it. There are different methods, you know, there are different methods of training that we can use. And, you know, it's not like 
when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Like I've got lots of different methodologies and training styles and things that I can help you with. And, you know, we can adjust your, your goals and your training based on how you're feeling. I really like that. I, th- I think that's, um, it's really elegant and it's really thoughtful when it's putting the, it's putting the customer first versus your, your principles, your bias, your style. Uh, and I think that's, that's beautiful. Um, I, I wanted to finish on one last question before we make sure Girl Has Gone Strong gets a good plug and people understand what they can get from it and where they can find services, engage with you, et cetera. The last question I had, and uh, I hope um, I don't burden you too much with, with the length of uh, your answer, but you spoke about having Hashimoto. So mm-hmm. do you still have Hashimoto's as an autoimmune condition now? Is it tested yes. positive? Yes. Right. Okay. So you have, an, have it, yeah. you have an autoimmune response, which is likely chronic to some degree, where you have an antibody kind of abuse to your thyroid. Mm-hmm. Does that just help people understand what they should be looking for in perhaps going to have a chat with an endocrine endocrinologist or a doctor what are the what in your experience are those symptoms which should ring some alarm bells so they can get some help maybe get some thyroxine maybe understand how to fix their diet and kind of deal with the inflammation of this autoimmune condition yeah that's a great question so for me the symptoms presented as um you know unexplained weight gain extreme fatigue and malaise. So just kind of feeling out of sorts and really tired, um, brain fog, dry skin, um, different periods of my life. I've had some hair loss, but that's often also correlated with stress. And that's also a symptom of PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So, um, it's difficult to know what, what that's coming from. Um, so those were my main symptoms. I have the fatigue and brain fog have primarily been what stuck with me. I've always had dry skin, so I don't know, you know, how early I was actually having thyroid issues, but, um, the two biggest symptoms that kind of plague me now are brain fog and fatigue. Um, and I also, um, work really hard and am typically under a decent amount of stress. So, Mm. um, with girls come strong and running the organization and, and that's, um, a very deliberate, not deliberate. I'm not deliberately putting myself under stress, but I understand that to achieve the specific professional goals I have, that there might be some effects to my health. And that's a sacrifice that I've um, been willing to make because of, you know, believing in the mission of Girls Gone Strong and also believing that it's relatively short term. Um, So for me, my nutrition is pretty solid. My strength training and cardio are pretty solid. It's been um, my sleep. I get enough sleep, but I'm kind of a night owl. So I go to bed a bit later than most folks. Um, And then my stress has probably been, so my sleep could be a little bit improved. My stress levels definitely um, could be improved. But yeah, so overall, those are the things that I do to manage my Hashimoto's is I um, strength train three to four days a week. I don't like, you know, absolutely try to quote unquote crush myself in the gym. I pick four to eight exercises, three to four sets, anywhere from six to 15 reps generally, um, and rest adequately and try to challenge myself. Um, when I'm lifting, I try to walk on a regular basis. I've been doing a lot of hiking. I've been getting a good amount of sunshine. I eat protein with every meal, um, or snack. I try to eat a good amount of fruits and vegetables. Um, I don't deliberately like 
eat a ton of carbohydrate. Like I'm not like, I'm going to add a bunch of potatoes and rice and things like that, but it just kind of naturally occurs in my diet because I like, um, ice cream and I say diet as in not like a diet I am on, but just diet. Yeah. yeah, the way of eating. Um, I like ice cream. I like pizza. I like tacos. So it kind of, you know, naturally shows up in my diet. I love fruit. I love vegetables, things like that. Um, and do, so, do you do you take thyroxine or some other form of? I do. Yes, I take. Yep, I take um, Synthroid and Cytomel, which is levothyroxine and leothyronine. I take both of those. Um, I'm on relatively low doses of those, which is good. And I work, my doctor actually has Hashimoto's himself. So I like working with someone who understands, and he also prioritizes nutrition and lifestyle and exercise and strength training. So that's really good. Um, I get enough sunshine. Like I said, try to get enough sleep. I avoid gluten all of the time, 100%, no matter what, it is not one of those things where it's like, Oh, I'll just have a little, um, I've been contaminated. I gave up gluten almost 11 years ago. And I've been contaminated three times in the last 11 years that I know of and was violently ill every time. So right. um, I also don't drink alcohol, which is more of just a, I don't really like it. I've never really drank it. It's just kind of a personal choice. So um, not, Sound, you know, sounds not, like you're doing, doing everything you can to um, not further antagonize the situation and you're supplementing with a medication which brings balance hormonally. Uh, which I, mm -hmm. my wife does, and it does make a big difference to her, even though she's on an incredibly low dose herself. And she does, like you, all the positive e uh, effects of sunshine and rest mm -hmm. and, you know, real recovery activities and appropriate exercise. Um, I, I wish for her that she'd be able to see her antibodies go down, that she mm. would be in control of this and somehow reverse it. But though thus far, we've not we've not had that you know, eureka moment of this going into remission. It seems to be something that she's controlling and um, feeling good about Managing. herself. Yeah, she feels great yeah. about herself, but she understands this is hasn't gone away yet and she needs to manage right. it through medication and through her, uh, her dietary and lifestyle choices. She has to be bang on. Is that how you feel too? Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like, again, as long as I avoid gluten a hundred percent and I'm about 80% with nutrition, sleep, exercise, stress management, sunshine, things like that, I feel pretty good. I have always been curious, like, okay, if, if, if managing or trying to reverse my Hashimoto's were my 100% focus, would I be able to do that? And I think at some point that might be, um, might be an interesting experiment, but I also know that at this point in time, given my lifestyle, my mm, professional goals, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's not realistic. And I would actually stress myself out further trying to do that. So I will be interested at some point to probably play around with that, um, and experiment, you know, again, with like a stricter way of eating and just like really, really strict, you know, going to bed at a certain time and doing, you know, certain restorative meditative activities, things like that. Um, yeah, I think I would be fingers crossed, interested. right? You'd like to think that with that, with the level of knowledge we have and with the tools we have available, that there will be some women or some men out there in the world that can express control and reversal of this autoimmune condition, right? There are other autoimmune conditions that have been considered chronic that get put mm -hmm. into remission. I, I, it yeah. feels to me that the body's amazing. And if you give it enough time, it recovers. Um, yeah. I just haven't been able to hear enough evidence that we've been able to do that yet on with Hashimoto's, but I, I feel positive that it's possible. But you, as you say, I think you need, 
if you've if you've quote unquote abused your body unknowingly yeah. for 30, 40 years, trying to correct it in one or two is unlikely. Maybe this is a 10 year journey, but maybe it is mm. a journey you can take. I'm curious as to what people do over the coming decade or so. Definitely. And one, you know, we at Girls Gun Strongs pride ourselves on being very evidence-based, which is a combination of the best available research with practical and clinical evidence and pay, or practical and clinical experience and patient values. Um, but a friend of mine who um, is a, she's a naturopathic doctor. She was partway toward her um, PhD in pharmacy when she decided to go back to school and be trained in naturopathic medicine. Um, and there's a difference, at least in the States, between a naturopath and a naturopathic doctor. So she went to a four-year school, did a residency, can perform small surgeries, can prescribe in a number of states in the U.S. Um, but she, especially, her name's Dr. Brooke um, Kalanick-Larson, and she specializes in Hashimoto's and PCOS. And, you know, she's got um, a very balanced perspective, I would say, between Eastern and Western I ideas about Hashimoto's. But she's like, is it any surprise that autoimmune disease is essentially our bodies turning against ourselves and beating ourselves up and that women present with autoimmune disease significantly more than men. Mm. And I thought that was of such an interesting perspective. It is, it is essentially the physical manifestation of beating ourselves up and that, you know, like, again, I don't, I, I don't know a ton about energy work and all of that kind of stuff, but I thought that that was a really profound statement. We know how powerful our minds are. We know how powerful our emotions are. We know how powerful our thoughts about ourselves and our bodies are and the ways that they can show up in our lives. And I, I found that to be a really, yeah, a really profound statement um, as it relates to women and autoimmune disease. I agree. I think that the, the more the more work we do at understanding that, you know, that we aren't just living in a, logic brain world right there is there is emotion mm. there is flow there is energy and this is a real mm. thing but you you it, it is woo it sounds a bit out there and it requires mm -hmm. you to be at the right place in your life to explore it but <laughs> when you do and as i'm starting to you start to realize there's more you can manifest in your world purely through data and logic there's parts of it that require commitment belief faith energy and yeah. you get to work on those things right so i think that's a fantastic fantastic close to our conversation molly you have been amazing thank you for being one so open and to giving me so much of your time um we've spoken about girls gone strong throughout the conversation of course it's your it's your baby uh but <laughs> do you want to just kind of close on you know just closing up on you know exactly what is it how can yeah. women use this this community and where can they find it? Yeah, absolutely. So Girls Gun Strong is an organization that specializes in evidence-based interdisciplinary. So working with experts from all different disciplines of health and fitness um, organizations. So we, we specialize in providing evidence-based interdisciplinary women-specific health, fitness, and nutrition information to women and to the health and fitness professionals who work with women. And so we do this through courses, articles, certification programs, coaching, et cetera. So not only do we work with women directly through like our Girls Gun Strong coaching program and online coaching program, um, we also sell workout programs for 
um, different goals. So hypertrophy, strength, fat loss, things like that for women who are pregnant, women who are postpartum. And then we train health and fitness professionals to work with women through two coaching certifications. So one is our women's coaching specialist certification, which covers coaching, psychology, female anatomy and physiology, rest, recovery, um, exercise programming across a woman's lifespan. And then we, um, also have the uh, certification for the covers coaching psychology, all of that stuff um, for pre and postnatal women. And so those are kind of our main ways that we educate our uh, and help our community. And then we also have tons of articles and free courses and things like that. And as you can probably imagine, we go deeper than just kind of your normal, like nutrition and exercise. And we dive deep into the psychology of coaching women, body image, disordered eating. We cover often um, misunderstood or overlooked topics like um, pelvic health, mental health, pre and postnatal health, um, and just really try to provide comprehensive um, resources for women and health and fitness professionals who work with women about helping women achieve their health and fitness goals. And you can find a lot more about us at girlsgonestrong.com and also um, we're on Facebook at Girls Gone Strong and then on Instagram at The Girls Gone Strong. Somebody jumped in ahead of us and snagged the no Girls way. Gone Strong Instagram. I know, right? They have like zero posts too. I you know, got, a con- <laughs> got a contact Instagram about it at some point. But uh, yeah, same thing with Molly Galbraith. Um, so yeah, so you can find us um, in those places on social media. Awesome. And I, I love what you're doing. It makes makes perfect sense. I think both female and male PTs are missing a beat in fully understanding the complexity of everything that we've just described today. And obviously the work that you commit to, it is different. Um, and I think uh, having the empathy and understanding would go a long way towards helping women feel health, uh, happy about themselves and more productive in what they do in the gym so thank you for everything that you're doing it's been a fantastic chat i hope you um a great year and um both professionally and personally and yeah i hope hopefully we keep in touch it'd be great to you know keep you close yes absolutely steve thank you so much for having me for the depth and thoughtfulness of your questions and just yeah how much um you care about this topic about helping women, helping women feel more comfortable in the world, creating a better life and world for your wife and your daughters and a brighter future for women in health and fitness. I really appreciate it. It has been a pleasure to connect with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best.
If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.